It is so good to have the Chancel Choir back, and you could be part of this choir. <laughs> this is just a little commercial message, but we enjoy such wonderful music in our worship experience, and if you have any interest or background in choral music, this might be a place for you to find your way to serve in the community and embellish the relationships you have in the church. So I invite you to think about that as we celebrate their return this Sunday. This morning, our text of Scripture comes from a, a little book, a very little book, Philemon in the New Testament. I hear people turning pages. Um, it's a tough little book to find. It's not the one that you normally turn to. In fact, this book of Philemon is only referred to once in the three-year lectionary cycle, and it's on this Sunday. I've never preached from the book of Philemon before, so this is going to be new for all of us. But I invite you to listen to God's Word. The book of Philemon is just 25 verses long. It's found just before the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. Listen for God's Word. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker, to Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to, the great, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When I remember you in my prayers, I always thank my God because I hear of your love for all the saints and your faith toward the Lord Jesus. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective when you perceive all the good that we may do for Christ. I've indeed received much joy and encouragement from your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, my brother. And for this reason, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do your duty, yet I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love. And I, Paul, do this as an old man and now also as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I am appealing to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I have become during my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he's indeed useful, both to you and to me. I am sending him, that is, my own heart, back to you. I wanted to keep him with me so that he might be of service to me in your place during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your good deed might be voluntary and not something forced. Perhaps this is the reason he was separated from you for a while, so that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If you consider me your partner, well, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. I say nothing about your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, let me share, let, excuse me. Yes, brother, let me have this benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I am writing to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray together. So, dear God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I'm sure partly because this little book is so short, there's a great deal of ambiguity about what it means. It is explicitly an appeal to Philemon and to Aphia and to Archippus. But it's intended to be read by the small house church that meets there in the home. We don't really know who Aphia and Archippus are, but it's possible they are the wife and the son of Philemon. We know that Paul is writing from prison, where he's awaiting trial as a Roman citizen. And he's writing to appeal to Philemon to receive Onesimus, an apparent slave, back into his household, but to receive him as a brother. It's unclear whether the appeal is to set him free or to overlook the wrong that Onesimus has committed against his master. Perhaps he ran away. It might be that he stole something, some theft. But Onesimus is now a member of the body of Christ, a Christian brother. So it appears that the primary concern is a relational one, not a structural one. Some significant change in the quality of the relationship is expected. It's not necessarily a societal structural change. Philemon is to treat Onesimus as a brother, not a slave. In other words, whatever the social stratification of the day that was operating in the world at that time was not to operate within the church. All have equal standing before the Lord. So what's uncovered in this short letter is the fact that in the first century world and many centuries before and for many centuries afterward, slavery existed. Onesimus left his master as a slave, but he returns to him as a brother. Or at least that's what Philemon is encouraged to treat him like. This is a text that was apparently used to argue both for and against slavery in the antebellum South during the abolitionist movement in our own country. Now, perhaps you've been following the story of Georgetown University this week. In 1838, Georgetown University profited from the sale of 272 slaves that were owned by the Jesuits, and it kept that school afloat during a critical time. The Jesuits have now acknowledged their ties to slavery and the slave trade, and they are one of dozens of schools in this country who are coming to terms with similar ties. 
because of the careful documentation of the Jesuits, the descendants of those 272 slaves that were sold in 1838 can be identified. This week, the president of Georgetown University announced measures offered as a formal apology, including erecting a public memorial to the slaves whose labor benefited the institution, and giving preference to the descendants of those slaves in the admissions decisions of Georgetown University, and renaming two buildings, two buildings which were formerly named for presidents of the institution that were part of the execution of that sale of 272 slaves, and instead they will be named for an African-American man who was one of the slaves and an African-American educator. It's an unprecedented response, an acknowledgment of the past, and an acknowledgment of the contributions of former slaves to the institution. The president said this, the president of Georgetown, this community participated in the institution of slavery. This original evil that shaped the early years of the Republic was present here. We have been able to hide from this truth, bury this truth, ignore and deny this truth. As a community and as individuals, we cannot do our best work if we refuse to take ownership of such a critical part of our history. We must acknowledge it. End quote. Well, the church has its history, and not all of it is good. We don't live in an idealistic world or some utopia, but in a real world where there is wrongdoing and subjugation of others, economic inequalities and desperation. In a world like this one, we're tempted to take advantage of one another as we climb our way up. But too often we have it backwards. We love things in our lives and we use people rather than using things and loving people. Just think of all the daily relationships that you encounter. There are parents and children. There are coaches and teachers. There are supervisors and bosses. There are housekeepers and babysitters and interns and colleagues. There's gardeners, mail carriers, secretaries, mailmen, wait staff at the restaurant, taxi or Uber drivers, and the list goes on. How do you treat all the people that you encounter in your daily life? And are you willing to perhaps rethink the categorization of others that determines how you treat them? Do you know if you put 10 chickens, any 10 chickens in a pen together and spread a little chicken feed, pretty quick you'll see an amazing phenomenon. In a matter of minutes, those chickens, previously strangers, will vie for a hierarchy based on dominance or in everyday language, they'll establish a pecking order. Instinctively, they will determine 
through a series of skirmishes who the number one chicken will be, and then number two, and then number three, all the way down to chicken number ten. And there's a lot at stake in that dance for dominance. Now, leadership is always needed because nothing is ever accomplished without leadership. <coughs> but how we exercise leadership and avoid dominance is critical. How do you treat those who serve you? It's funny, the most miserable people I know are the people who worry about their titles and their rank and their position. And the happiest people I know are the people who don't spend a lot of time worrying about their position or the order of things or their authority. They focus on something greater. Just like in this letter to Philemon, there's an expected change in the quality of our relationships that's expected in the community of faith. Even if we're not equals in all respects with those we encounter day to day, we must treat one another as brothers and sisters with honor and respect. When our fundamental understanding is based on the fact that we are all children of God, we are all equals before God, then we regard one another no longer by the hierarchy around us. And everyone has intrinsic value because they belong to the Lord. Now, I've used this illustration before, but I think it fits so well in this context. It's the story of the Fifth Assembly of the World Council of Churches. And as it was drawing to a close, the well-known anthropologist from the 60s and 70s, Margaret Mead, rose to her feet, and she approached the microphone to address the assembly. She surveyed this gathering throng of two and a half thousand people from many cultures and denominational labels and speaking of hundreds of different languages, people ranging from a Ghanaian court judge to a Memphis used car salesman, from the Archbishop of Canterbury to the tribesmen from northern Kenya who had walked for three days just to watch and to listen and to pray. And Dr. Margaret Mead said simply, you people are a sociological impossibility. You have nothing in common except your extraordinary conviction that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. Now, I love that view of Christian community. It cuts across the tribalism of our day. But we also must face some less flattering truths about our past, like that which has been acknowledged by Georgetown University. And in a world today that is threatened by all the tribalisms that we have, where people are mistreated by those higher in the pecking order, some fundamental change and the quality of our relationships still must be expected. I think the old hymn has it well. They will know we are Christians by our love. 
And the most telling relationships in our lives will be those in which we have some dominance or some leadership. How do we treat those people who have little power in their relationships with us? Those who are beneath us in the pecking order. Philemon has to rethink the categories he has come to accept from his culture. Because of his faith, he has to regard Onesimus no longer as his property, but as his brother in Christ, one for whom he is about to spend eternity. And therefore, Onesimus is due the honor and respect that those above Philemon in the pecking order deserve. If you only treat those who can do something for you or have some power over you with respect, what does that really say about you? That's one of the reasons why I usually conclude our worship services with this benediction. Go in peace. Hold on to what is good. Return no one evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering. Honor all people. This is the argument Paul is making in this little letter. and We glimpse what it looks like in the first century to rethink how we treat one another. What does it look like in the 21st century in your life? Is there some reconciliation or some new quality of relationship that is needed today in your life? Now, in the words of Oscar Wilde, some cause happiness wherever they go, and others cause happiness whenever they go. <laughs> Be one of those people who causes happiness wherever you go. Christ has died to set us all free. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's why we are together invited to this table, where each one of us has a seat, and there's no place of prominence, only the one who's invited us to come. In the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus encounters the two disciples walking along the road to Emmaus, he appears to be going on. He waits for an invitation. They invite him to join them for dinner. And then the guest becomes the host. And he breaks bread and gives it to them, and their eyes are opened, and they recognized him. All those who humbly put their trust in Christ, who are truly sorry for the brokenness in their own lives and the history that you no longer need to be tied to, all who humbly put their trust in Christ are invited to come to this table and to receive refreshment for your souls. Let us so come. Amen.